been waiting many weeks to say, would you please turn to Mark chapter 11. Gospel according to Mark chapter 11. In our study of the gospel according to Mark, we're now entering the final week of Jesus' life. Over one-third of this gospel is devoted to this last week. There's six chapters out of 16. Matthew uses one-fourth of his gospel for this last week. Eight chapters out of 28. Luke uses one-fifth of his gospel for this last week. Five and a half chapters out of 24 total. And John devotes almost half of his gospel to the events of the last week of Jesus' life, including teachings and many prayers. Ten chapters out of 21. The total number of chapters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is 89, and 29 and a half of these cover what happened from Jesus' triumphal entry through the resurrection. That means exactly one-third of the Gospels are devoted to the last week of Jesus' life and the resurrection. Yes, it is that important. This isn't just a story about the end of someone's life. It's the account of the most important events in all of human history, planned before the foundation of the world. Our salvation from sin and wrath depends on these things actually happening. The person and work of Christ is not just a matter of faith. It's a matter of history. In other words, faith in Christ is dependent on the facts concerning the historical Jesus. This does matter. The attitude of the New Testament is clearly that Jesus really lived and did these things. He really died and he really rose from the dead. And these are the main Christian truth claims made in the Bible that are rooted in history. And of course, this is terribly offensive to the ears of people in our culture which desperately want to divorce faith from history. Spirituality and spiritual things have been completely redefined in our day. There are still many spiritual experiences and sensitivities that people talk about, and they're still, for the most part, listened to and complimented and maybe even extolled until a truth claim is made that is written and rooted in history. Then what happens? Suddenly the spirituality conversations that were extolled earlier are now condemned because a truth claim rooted in history divides and it's not tolerant of accepting other claims being made. Assertions are then made. Assertions assert what is believed to be true. 
But in our day, you don't even have to defend the assertion. In other words, asserting is enough for anybody and everybody because, quote, your truth is as good as my truth, unquote. I hope you see the vicious and evil, evil circular reasoning here. And this is completely different from what the Christian believes. The truths of the Christian believers, the truths of the Christian believer, is they're not true because you believe them to be true. Well, let that sink in. They're not true because you believe them to be true, but because they're based upon historical events that really happened in time and space. And we've got to realize that this changes the game. It effectually ends the game. Because if the historical claims really happened, then the buck stops with the historical truth and what it claims, not with whether somebody believes it or not. In other words, faith is the reasonable response to a really good historical event, to historical evidence. Real, true, historical, orthodox Christianity is based on really good historical evidence. The historically based truth claims are so numerous that we can get to where we take them for granted, especially when we live in this age in which most people believe deep down inside in their own hearts that their own opinions are the only truths that really matter. And that's what we see all around us all the time. We've got to remember what the apostles actually claimed. Claims based on historical events, especially what we read in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In 1 Corinthians 15, he writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance. Did you hear that? What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Get this, most of whom are still alive at the time he wrote. Though some have fallen asleep, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born. Paul writes, he appeared also to me. This is really the sermon outline we see preached over and over again throughout the book of Acts. In Peter's sermon in Acts 3, verse 15, listen to his claims to historical events that really happened. Ready? And you killed the author of life, whom God 
raised from the dead. And to this, we are witnesses. A lot said right there. So as we approach this gospel account of the culmination of Jesus' work of redemption, let's do this by standing on the merits of the historical events, the events that really did happen. And it's vital for these events to have really happened for our faith to be real and vital. If you're able, would you please stand as I read Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Mark 11, 1 through 10, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says, says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they'd cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. First, we have this incredible picture of Jesus and this donkey. This climactic week begins then with what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And each of the four Gospels record this event. And the first really important detail is that Jesus arranged what was about to take place. Mark makes a big deal about all the instructions And how when the two disciples went into the village, the outside of Jerusalem or wherever they were, oh, that was up at Bethany, that it happened just like Jesus said. He takes pains to communicate all that. This was not merely a case of some people spontaneously breaking out with excitement, although there was, sure, a lot of that going on. As he proceeded. Instead, this was a case of Jesus carefully planning something to make a statement. A statement that we're going to see was probably not fully understood, hardly at all, 
as it was happening, really the way he was trying to make people see it, but something that they would remember. They could call to mind in support of their faith. So Jesus sends two disciples ahead to get a donkey. And Matthew's account informs us that there was actually two donkeys. Can you hear the clamor? Oh, this is a discrepancy. The Bible isn't telling the truth. But all he's doing here is recording a detail which the other three gospel writers leave out, which is that there was a mother donkey and her foal on which Jesus actually would sit. This was the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which two of the gospel writers, Matthew and John, actually quote. So why did Jesus do this? Obviously, he wasn't tired of walking. Had to be something more. And this is the only recorded instance of Jesus doing anything but walking. So he's obviously got something very important in mind here, something very, very meaningful that people will start getting. Zechariah's prophecy tells us what that is. When we look back to his book, it says, we read, Say to the daughter of Zion, Zechariah 9.9, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, that is, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Zechariah's prophecy, this whole context here, is what would happen to Israel in the future. The coming of God's king. In other words, Jesus coming into his capital city on a donkey means that he is saying he is the rightful king of Israel. But what a king. Humble, seated on a donkey. This is a picture of coming in peace, a gentle, humble reign. In Revelation 19.11, we see the king coming on another animal. What? A white horse. He was coming then to judge and make war. This is in the future. But this is what we're reading is the already. Revelation is the not yet. The two different comings that hardly anybody understood at this point. Up to this point, Jesus had been keeping his, even his messianic claim almost a secret so that there would not be a serious and premature attempt by many people to make him the king. Jesus was also constantly aware that he was not the kind of king that the people were expecting or that the people wanted even. But now, knowing the time of his passion was at hand, Jesus deliberately provoked this demonstration. And what did the people do? In verse 7 of our text we read, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. These are his guys. 
And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Spreading their cloaks on the road was actually an ancient act of homage reserved for high royalty. In John's account, in John chapter 12, verse 13, we learned that the leafy branches were from palm trees, palm trees which symbolize salvation and joy. In Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, we see the, quote, great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and here's the greatest part, and to the Lamb. But what did the people shout as Jesus rode this young donkey into Jerusalem? Well, we find out. Verse 9, the last part of verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, two of these sentences are from Psalm 118 in verses 25 and 26. In Psalm 118, the first part of verse 25, we see, Save us, we pray, O Lord. And in verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you go, well, those are different. No, they're not. In our text in Mark, Hosanna is a transliteration of the Hebrew phrase meaning save us now. Think about that if you ever want to scream Hosanna. Save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now, let's talk just a second about Psalm 118. Psalm 118, where this comes from, um, is the last part of six psalms, a set of psalms called the Hallel. And they refer to the praise psalms sung at major feasts by the nation, especially Passover. So Psalm 118 is distinctly messianic. Speaking about the stone in this chapter, rejected by the builders but destined to become the cornerstone, that's Psalm 118.22, and many other things. So what were the people actually shouting? In English, save us now. And remember that Jesus entered Jerusalem during the Passover week. Actually, probably at the very time thousands of Passover lambs were being brought into the city, 
later to be killed and eaten as a part of the Passover observance. But we should note there's something else going on with these Passover lambs. There was an elaborate inspection program going on to be sure that each Passover lamb was spotless without blemish. And it was happening the same time that Jesus was riding in on the donkey as the Passover lamb. Most of the people shouting here did not understand the significance and the connections that we see now in what Jesus was doing. There may have been many who did see some part of it. Everybody in Israel was crying out to be delivered from the Romans. And everybody in Jerusalem had heard about Jesus and all the miracles that he performed. You put all this together, they knew something big was happening And some were hinting that here comes the Messiah. He's already here. And when you live in close quarters in a big city as Jerusalem in the ancient world where everybody was on the streets, this kind of atmosphere can spread like wildfire. And... There were people coming into Jerusalem on the road along with Jesus. You notice that Mark says those before where he was coming in and those after he was coming in. These two groups met up. The people that were with Jesus and had been with him for a while, traveling with him into Jerusalem, his disciples and some others. And then stopping in Bethany, three miles, a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem, picked up some more. But the, the roads were heavily traveled. Nobody was speeding. Everybody could talk. Everybody could ask, what's going on? So the word about who this was and why he was doing this and the people that kind of got some connection were doing some ancient things that have been handed down as traditions for a long time about paying homage to a royal ruler, some connections were obviously being made. But still, the actual understanding of it was a little shallow and not quite on target. But as they found out this was Jesus on the donkey... And all these people were shouting this, save us now, and the rest of that exclamation, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, as he was riding slowly. You can see what's happening. They were the appropriate verses from Psalm 18, were they not? The proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. But... Still, most were not expecting the human fulfillment of the very Passover feast they were there to celebrate. Don't get down on them. How many of us see connections days, weeks after we were going, there was something more to that. I just don't understand what that was. 
Instead, their expectations that they had and the connections they were making were along the lines of the Messiah King not coming on a donkey, but asking where the war horse is. A symbol of one coming to win a war and to judge. So the shouts, the hosannas, mean save us now. And they were probably some part of the regular Passover observance of hoping and praying for the deliverance that God had promised. But now these shouts of praise were directed at this healing rabbi who'd already demonstrated what? The incredible power and the authority, authority of God Almighty. I mean, what had they seen? What had they heard about him? They'd seen Jesus utterly confound Israel's elite, brilliant religious leaders with the authoritative teaching of the Bible as he presented it, shutting them up and making them so mad that they were plotting to kill him. They had seen Jesus or heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And one of the gospel writers actually mentions that, John does, about one of the reasons everybody was gathered shouting all this. Because they'd been witnesses of that miracle. Know anybody else that raised somebody from the dead? They'd seen Jesus cast out demons. They'd seen Jesus and heard about him feeding thousands and thousands of people. They'd seen Jesus control nature any time he wanted to. And these people knew people who knew people who had been there. Yes, they were excited. Could he be the one? This truly incredible and remarkable act is really remarkable and incredible Because Jesus did ride into town coming in the name of the Lord as the son of David, the Messiah, whether anybody else really knew all that or not. He made the statement. And what was the reaction of the city? Can you find it in Mark? Mark doesn't tell us. Matthew does. Matthew 21, verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Can you picture this? Thousands of people shouting, the crowd growing as he comes into Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem can't be all on the same street at the same time. And they hear the shouting. What are they hearing? Shouts of Hosanna, come save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Something big is obviously going on and they want to know what it is. So the crowd tells them. 
hey, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The people in Jerusalem were stirred up. There was more than just a buzz that swept through the city. The shouts of Hosanna ringing, save us now. Something big was happening. The expectation was growing, but not everyone could obviously see what it was, which is why Matthew records them saying, who is this? Now, this was definitely true. This was the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. But they were still missing the bigger points, right? And there's two reasons for that. And we've talked about these many times already in the Gospel of Mark. They were still equating the coming of the Messiah with a powerful political ruler, the kind who could get rid of the Romans for good. And the disciples were still thinking this pretty much as well as we've seen, so we shouldn't be surprised that almost everyone else wouldn't fully understand it. And secondly, despite the correctness of the words used to praise Jesus as he rode in on the donkey as the King and Messiah, it was really a shallow proclamation for so many of them. Why? Because five days later, most of the crowd would be shouting what? Crucified. Wow. Who is Jesus? This would be a real good time to get your answer to this question straight in case you haven't already done that. Mark has been presenting Jesus as the servant king, rejected by many but believed on by a few. Where do you stand on this issue? Is Jesus the king? Is he the son of God? Is he the savior? Have you trusted him for the salvation of your soul? And in considering who Jesus was, who he is, first, we've got to eliminate the one truly impossible idea That is, by the way, the most popular idea. It shouldn't surprise you that the most popular is also the most impossible about Jesus. And what is that? That he was merely a good man. You say that and you can kind of get along with everybody. Whatever he might be, he was certainly not just a good man. For no good man could honestly make the claims that he made. Jesus presented himself as the savior of the human race, claiming to be God. Is he? That's the question. If so, then he is so much more than a mere man. If not, then the best thing you could say about him is that He was not good. And the worst is that he's a deceiver. So what are we to do with these claims? John Stott writes, The claims are there. The claims themselves do not constitute evidence of deity. They could have been false. 
but some explanation of them must be found. We cannot any longer regard Jesus as just a good teacher. Especially if he was so grievously mistaken in one of the chief main subjects of his teaching, which was what? Who he was. His own claims about himself. What he did to prove it. Not many realize that there are really only three possibilities of who Jesus was. And these have been worked out many ways. But we all need to know these. There's only really three possibilities. One way to explain it is either he was Lord or he was a lunatic or he was a liar. The main point is he could not just be a good man or a good teacher. Another way to explain the same thing is you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else he was a madman or something else. Some of you C.S. Lewis people will realize that's who wrote this. But many have. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and call him and kill him for being a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronize. I love this. First heard this in college. Yeah, that was a long time ago. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher because he has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. I saw in person Josh McDowell take on a bunch of University of Texas professors on campus several times. With these truth claims... People didn't respond well. People don't like this narrowing of their options. But this is what we stand on. Luke ends his account of this event, his account, Luke, by recording the Pharisees' reaction after hearing so many people especially all of Jesus' disciples, but many people saying this. This is what he writes. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's what they heard. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, are you ready? Said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Hear what he's saying? You can't say that out loud. This is when Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He did this on purpose to make a statement about himself, this entry into the capital city. 
It was loud. It was clear. It's something we celebrate on Palm Sunday. It starts off the last week of his life. The king has come, and we must pay him his due, whatever the cost. We. We must bow down before him. We must worship him. We must serve him. We must love him. We must appreciate him. And by our lives and words, we join in this acclamation of praise because we know what it means. We're after the fact. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because the next time he comes, it will be on a white horse. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God Almighty, what a display. How true you are to your word, every point, every part of it was fulfilled, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And oh God, we thank you that you give us so many of these events to read about that are historically true. that you make the connections. You not only sent your son, you made clear what his purpose was, how he lived the perfect life that's demanded of us in our stead, how he then could be the only atoning sacrifice for sin, which is punishable by death, and that he rose from the grave to prove that that sacrifice was acceptable to you. And he is on his throne. Oh God, would you encourage our hearts as we live day to day in the same world that these people lived in that mostly mocks you or pays lip service And it's so easy to get caught up and not think about what is at stake. Oh, Lord, you have put us where you have in order to show, demonstrate, talk about the grace that is only in Jesus Christ, people's only hope. And we pray that you would use us in every way imaginable to have that kind of impact on people's lives. To love you with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that as you bring people to life through the power of the gospel, that they could know the peace that they now have with you. They could see Christ's blood covering all of their sin and that the joy that has replaced their despair would be visible throughout whatever circumstances come in life. That our our trust, our hope, our anchor 
the anchor of our soul is Jesus because you have placed us in him. Thank you for placing us together to be able to worship you on a weekly basis together. Lord, help us not take these blessings for granted. Not only has Jesus saved us, but he keeps us. And we pray for you to work mightily in our land to bring people to know yourself through Christ, your son. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.